Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back for the third and final lecture on North America. In this lecture, we're going to take a look at the geopolitical uh, issues in North America, as well as the political geography of the region. And then we'll also take a look at the economic geography. So we want to, first of all, take a look at how uh, political space was created in North America. Um, the United States and Canada have uh, somewhat different origins. Uh, the United States, for example, uh, was controlled by Native Americans when, uh, uh, when the Europeans arrived, of course. And so we can say that a, uh, the United States was a Native American-controlled political space, uh, which was overwritten by European political space. Uh, the 13 original English colonies emerged and later achieved independence following uh, the American Revolution against the English. And then uh, after that, uh, obviously, the United States embarked on a westward expansion to its present configuration of the 48 lower states and, of course, uh, Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, as far as Canada is concerned, a little bit different uh, process. The Canadian Confederation grew in a piecemeal fashion as provinces were assembled in a slow and uncertain fashion. Unlike the United States, Canada's, Canada's spatial growth emerged more out of ge geographic convenience than a compelling nationalism. So um, I'm, I'm sure you're all familiar with the term uh, manifest destiny, uh, and that's what really drove the U.S. expansion across the entire continent was this idea that Europeans uh, uh, should be able to control this entire uh, space. So obviously, uh, the United States had, and, and uh, Canada are neighbors. Uh, I think that's pretty safe to assume. Uh, and the geopolitical relationships between the United States and Canada have always been pretty close and impact both economic and environmental issues. And it's really interesting to uh, note that they actually share one of the longest uh, borders in the world. Uh, the border between the United States and Canada is over 5,000 uh, miles, actually over 5,500 miles in length. Um, the United States and Canada both participate in International Joint Commission created out of the Boundary Waters Treaty of 1909. This commission regulates cross-boundary issues involving uh, the Great Lakes uh, water resources, transportation, and environmental quality. Other international Agreements include the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement uh, from 1972 and the U.S.-Canada Air Quality Agreement of 1991. And so you can see from this map, uh, there are some challenges to the federalism uh, that we talked about. Uh, the United States is clearly um, uh, organized on the federal system where the, uh, the, um, the powers that are not granted to the central government or the federal government is then given to uh, the states, uh, and so there and a similar situation in Canada. So some of the challenges that are faced uh, at, uh, by Canada, for example, is the uh, prospect of Quebec seceding from uh, Canada, and there's been several votes on that, and actually they have failed uh, by very narrow margins in some cases. Uh, both countries face claims uh, by Native Americans. Uh, Native Americans, as you recall, were the original settlers of this uh, continent, and they essentially have been pushed uh, to marginal spaces uh, by Europeans. And then, of course, there's the politics of immigration, particularly for the United States. Um, and uh, much of that uh, immigration is obviously along the southern border with Mexico, uh, 
first of all, there's a lot of different questions that we'll take a look at uh, a little bit later. Is, for example, how many immigrants should the United States allow into the country on an annual basis? There's the question of undocumented immigrants as well. So, uh, you know, and also the United States uh, in particular, but also Canada faces uh, geopolitical questions that are outside of the region. So, for example, the United States uh, with its um, military actions in, in several parts of the world, and then Canada, of course, uh, uh, typically uh, allying themselves with the United States in some of those uh, campaigns overseas. So there's a variety of different political, uh, geopolitical questions and issues uh, that both countries face. So we talked a bit about the uh, Great uh, the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes is one of the most environmentally complex political boundaries in the world, obviously. Uh, I don't think that comes to any, uh, as any surprise. And I already mentioned some of the agreements that the two countries have assigned, both political agreements and environmental agreements, to uh, try to ensure the quality of the waters in the Great Lakes. Uh, the U.S. and Canada are key trading partners, and with Mexico, the three countries uh, signed the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994. And this was an agreement uh, to reduce the uh, trade uh, barriers between all three countries uh, to reduce tariffs and so forth. Political conflicts still exist. Environmental issues are especially important. Uh, I already mentioned the immigration restrictions have intensified and agricultural and natural resource competition uh, also causes tension in some cases. So the, uh, when we talk about um, the uh, Native Americans in the United States and the First Nations people of Canada. This is an example of life in Nunavut, which is one of the first uh, First Nations people in Canada. And then this is an example of um, the international border along the uh, in Arizona. And as you can see, we have the wall built here that's, uh, along the border. And obviously, that's become very controversy, controversial in and of itself, the building of that wall. Um, we see walls being built between various countries and different parts of countries and so forth to keep some people out to prevent other people from leaving and things like that. So um, while this is very controversial along the southern border of the United States, uh, it certainly isn't unique uh, to the United States. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, the uh, U.S. global expansion uh, that has uh, created conflicts and uh, conflict and politics, the military presence in many parts of the uh, of the world uh, uh, creates a lot of controversy, not just in this country, uh, but also in other countries around the world. And it seems to be, you know, the United States is trying to impose itself on other parts of the world and meddle into the affairs of other countries. So we've talked about uh, the United States, for example, as well as Canada. Uh, has uh, are uh, involved in a variety of different uh, political and military agree agreements. NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is just one of those that both countries are involved with. And, of course, the Organization of American States is another one uh, that both uh, countries are involved in. Uh, I'm sorry, I wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about federalism. Um, so when we talk about federalism, uh, there's two types of states or countries, if you prefer, uh, governments uh, that we can uh, take a look at. The first is a federal system in which considerable political power and autonomy are allocated to subnational units of government. So really that's uh, kind of what the United States 
follows, as well as Canada. In a unitary system in which power is centralized at the national level, both uh, the United States and Canada, as I said, exhibit uh, uh, the federal forms of political authority, although their origins and evolution are very different. The United States Constitution initially, initially limited central authority and allocated all unspecified power to the states. Over time, political power has become increasingly centralized at the national level. And of course, this creates uh, some controversy in the, uh, in the United States. Many of the southern states, for example, uh, feel that the federal government has become too powerful and they want to see more power uh, given back to the states. The, Ca the Canadian Constitution initially reserved most powers to central authorities. Um, it has evolved to reflect more provincial autonomy and a relatively weak national government. So you can kind of see the two countries have evolved um, kind of reverse of each other. Uh, as I mentioned before, Quebec remains a major political issue in Canada, uh, and there are, uh, and, and there are uh, several economic and cultural differences between the province of Quebec and the remainder of Canada. Many residents of Quebec seek increased autonomy rather than separatism. Some people seek in Quebec actually want to separate from Canada. Uh, others that really would like more autonomy. And they have actually gained some autonomy, uh, some additional autonomy in Quebec. Uh, but uh, people are continue to push for even more. I've talked a bit about the Native peoples, and I'm going to continue that discussion uh, a bit. Uh, Native peoples and national politics. In the United States, Native, Native American political power uh, has increased somewhat. Since 1975, with the passage of the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act in the United States, Native Americans have gained political autonomy. The Indian Gaming Regulatory uh, Act of 1988 offered potential economic independence uh, for uh, the Native American reservations. In Canada, the First Nations people have gained political autonomy uh, as well. The Native Claims Office was established in 1975 and has since turned over a million acres of land to um, the Native, uh, the First Nations people. Canada also created the Eastern Territory of Nunavut, and we saw a photograph of that in a previous slide, in 1999, representing a new level of Native self-government. Efforts are underway to create a similar, similar territory in the western part of Canada. We've also talked a bit about the uh, immigration, the politics of immigration. Uh, immigration policies are highly controversial in the U.S., as I mentioned before. The four key issues uh, that are at the center of the debate are um, uh, there are continuing disagreements over the legal limit of immigration, how many people should actually be allowed into the country. Some groups support uh, greater restrictions, uh, thus reducing immigration, while other groups favor fewer restrictions, thereby increasing immigration. Both groups maintain that their policies would benefit the economy. There are disagreements over the policing of the U.S.-Mexican border, as I mentioned before, and the need to reduce the in-migration of undocumented uh, migrants. Immigration policy has become connected to discussions and concerns over international drug trade, and especially drug-related violence along the uh, U.S. and Mexican border. And so we know that there's uh, quite a bit of violence uh, just uh, across the border of Mexico, and some of that seems to be creeping uh, into uh, the United States right along um, the border. 
There's no political consensus on, on policies addressing the millions of undocumented migrants already residing in the United States. There's been a variety of proposals put forward, and there was actually some hope this year that a new agreement could be reached, but um, that uh, at, at this point, that actually hasn't happened. Some policymakers advocate uh, amnesty programs, while others advocate stricter felony-level penalties and deportion. So, uh, continuing on and taking a look at the uh, global reach of uh, uh, um, uh, of the Americas, America's geopolitical influence has expanded over the last two centuries. Um, probably most of you are familiar with a document called the Monroe Doctrine of 1824. This asserted that the U.S. Uh, that U.S. interests were hemispheric and transcendent national boundaries, and so I really uh, discouraged uh, Europeans. Uh, from using uh, force in the Western Hemisphere, especially uh, as uh, uh, various countries uh, began to declare their independence in the Western Hemisphere, particularly in Latin America, obviously. The Spanish-American War in 1898 contributed to further geopolitical expansion, and this was marked by the annexation of the Philippines, Guam, and the Hawaiian Islands. Um, and then also, as a result, um, between 1898 and 1916, America's geopolitical influence extended into Central America and particularly into the Caribbean. During the 1920s and the 1930s, the U.S. adopted a relatively isolationist approach to geopolitics. This, of course, changed after the Second, uh, Second World War. The U.S. extended its geopolitical reach during the Cold War. Uh, specific events included the Truman Doctrine, uh, which uh, the establishment of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which I mentioned before, and the Organization of American States. The U.S. was involved in many regional conflicts and war, wars uh, during the Cold War period as well, including the Korean War and, of course, the Vietnam War uh, during the 1960s and the um, first half of the 1970s. Following the Cold War, the American, political, um, uh, the American geopolitical influence intensified particularly in the Middle East, uh, and we've, we continue to see that today. Other locations of military uh, involvement include uh, the former Yugoslavia. The U.S. military has adopted a more flexible approach, uh, well, uh, somewhat more flexible approach to planning and basing of troops. So I think it's really important to understand that U.S. military influence is, uh, is really global in nature. Um, and the United States has really, um, it's estimated the United States has military bases or a military presence in something like 135 of the two, 135 countries of the 200 countries that are, or the approximate 200 countries that are recognized by the United Nations. Um, and so, you know, we really need to question that military uh, presence in uh, a wide variety of, of countries across the globe. Um, for example, isn't really necessary uh, because the amount of money that we spend on our military um, exceeds the amount of money that probably the next uh, 15 countries um, spend on their militaries. So it's a huge amount of money that we spend uh, that could, quite frankly, be used in other places, um, such as education, healthcare, and so forth. Uh, but those are decisions that you have to make for yourself. Uh, you know, um, I can offer my opinion, but really. It's up to you to decide if this military presence, this global military presence, is really necessary. Um, 
So let's uh, take a look at the economic and social development uh, in North America. Um, North, uh, uh, North America has, an abundant has abundant natural resources. Its climate provides a diverse agricultural base. Uh, so there's um, a wide variety of opportunities for agriculture. North America has one of the most efficient food producing systems in the world. Um, agriculture remains a dominant land use across uh, the continent. Agriculture is highly commercialized, mechanized, and specialized. Uh, and also remember, it's also efficient because of all the fertilizers and stuff that we put on the land. Uh, the geography of North American farming represents the combined impacts of diverse environments, obviously, uh, particularly climatic environments, uh, varied, and con varied continental and global markets, uh, historical patterns of settlement and agricultural evolution, and of course the growth role of agribusiness or corporate farming that has, quite frankly, um, overtaken uh, the, the smaller family farms that we like to idealize in, in the United States. So you can see uh, from this particular map um, some of the uh, uh, farming areas in uh, the different types of farming that uh, occur in different parts of North America. So in our area, up in here, where most of us are from, you can see we have a lot of dairy farming uh, and a lot of other uh, kinds of uh, mixed farming in this, uh, in this area. So for example, New Jersey is sometimes referred to as the Garden State. And the reason it's referred to the, as the Garden State is because New Jersey produces a lot of the fruits and vegetables for the New York City metropolitan area, as well as some of the other large metropolitan areas along um, the East Coast of the United States. Um, there's also uh, a, a significant number of um, industrial raw materials in the United States. North Americans extract and consume huge quantities of natural resources. Uh, although well endowed with many resources, the diverse needs of North American industries require additional materials to be imported. Despite significant oil uh, production, for example, U.S. consumption levels require additional and sizable amounts to, of oil to be imported. Coal is abundant in the United States, but its overall importance to energy production has been declining, uh, particularly because of the environmental consequences of burning coal. North America is endowed with considerable reserves of copper, lead, and zinc, and is an important provider of gold, silver, and nickel. So uh, we've also uh, created a, a continental economy. North America's global reach has extended through its enormous, uh, through its economic innovations. Uh, and um, we have connectivity, uh, and we're going to talk about connectivity and economic growth. Connectivity is how well different locations are linked through transportation and communication networks. North America's connectivity has increased dramatically throughout its history, facilitating, uh, and this has facilitated economic growth. Technological innovations have contributed to increased uh, connectivity as well. So if you think back through your American history, uh, you know, think of the significance of, first of all, of canal building uh, in uh, increasing connectivity uh, and contributing to the westward expansion of the United States. Then we can look at the railroad um, era in the United States and that comes up, brings us up to the railroad, or I'm sorry, the highway uh, innovations that have occurred. And then obviously one of those big innovations has been the uh, interstate highway system. 
And so this has allowed uh, continental connectivity. And then, of course, when we talk about communications connectivity, again, we can go back, you know, to, you know, back in the olden days to like the Pony Express and then the telegraph and the telephone systems. And now, obviously, the Internet and so forth um, have also contributed to economic growth. Uh, so we will also want to talk about a sectoral transformation. This refers to the evolution of a nation's labor from one economic sector to another. Economic se sectors are classified as uh, as primary, that is natural resource extraction. So that would include things like agriculture, uh, mining, uh, it would include uh, forestry, fishing, and things like that. Uh, the second uh, dairy secondary sector of the economy refers to manufacturing or industrial sector. Uh, the tertiary sector refers to services, and we usually think of these as lower level services, uh, such as uh, retail, uh, uh, retail services and things like that, uh, maybe also wholesale services and transportation and things like that. And then the quaternary sector is information processing. In North America, most workers are employed in the tertiary and quaternary sectors. This represents a trans transformation from earlier centuries when primary activities and then secondary, secondary activities were predominant. Uh, so we also can identify regional uh, economic patterns. Uh, location factors are varied. Uh, are, are the very influences that explain why economic activity is locate, wh located where it is. Factors include proximity to natural resources, connectivity, labor supplies, market demand, and capital investment. Major manufacturing regions include megalopolis, as you can see uh, from the map here, um, also along the Great Lakes region. Up in Canada, we can look at uh, the area in Main Street, particularly around Montreal and Toronto, and then, of course, around uh, Detroit and uh, Cleveland in this area. And then, of course, we have some uh, concentrations of manufacturing along the Gulf Coast. And then there's uh, around Los Angeles and San Diego and San Francisco, and then even up into Portland and Seattle and Vancouver along the West Coast. Uh, uh, so, as I mentioned, major manufacturing Regions include megalopolis, sunbelt locations along the Gulf Coast, the West Coast, uh, as well. Many industries benefit from what we ref sometimes refer to as agglomeration economies, in which companies with similar and often integrated manufacturing operations locate near one another. So let's use uh, the Gulf Coast as an example. Uh, so we know that there's lots of oil uh, drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and we talked about uh, one of the uh, oil spills um, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. So that oil, uh, it comes into uh, the mainland area, and right in this area of, uh, well, right along this manufacturing belt here, we have a lot of petrochemical industries that use uh, that crude oil in the manufacturing of a variety of different products, such as uh, we talked about, uh, you know, we continue to talk about fertilizer, pesticides, and things like that, but also plastics and, and things like that. So that's an that's uh, an example of an agglomeration economy, uh, and the reasons that these uh, account these agglomeration economies develop is because uh, they can reduce costs on transportation of uh, raw materials and so forth. And then, of course, the markets are nearby as well, so we can reduce the cost of transportation of our finished products uh, 
um, to the market. Um, so these, this map illustrates some of the uh, various uh, types of uh, agriculture as well as some of the uh, areas of uh, concentration of industry. So this is what this is an image that I was referring to of uh, the uh, Gulf Coast Petroleum Refinery, and you can see, uh, as I mentioned, the the oil is uh, brought in off the piped in off the Gulf of Mexico, uh, refined here, and then turned into other types of products in Silicon Valley, particularly around. Uh, this would be located around San Francisco and just to the south in San Jose. Uh, we find an agglomeration of information technology uh, and computer types of uh, in, uh, industries in this area. So taking a look at the, some of the uh, social issues in North America, economic and social problems continue to shape North America's human geography. Significant income differences persist and have actually increased. Disparities in access to health care and education also exist. Problems with gender inequity, inequity and aging populations re, uh, remain as well. Globalizing processes have impacted these conditions. So let's take a look at wealth and poverty first. Disparities between the rich and poor are visible in the landscape. Uh, and you can obviously see uh, this here, obviously this gated community in Tampa. Uh, and you can think about, compare that to some of our inner cities uh, locations and the um, types of housing that people, uh, uh, poor people uh, live in. Uh, the distribution of wealth and poverty varies widely across the, uh, the region. Many of the wealthiest communities are located in suburban locations while the poorest are located in the inner cities. Uh, some additional challenges uh, of the 21st centuries, companies and workers are attempting to adjust the uncertainties of a global economy. Uh, education is a major public policy issue. Gender remains a key social issue with significant gender gap. Um, and when we talk about gender gap, we're talking about the differences between men and women's salaries um, that uh, essentially work in the same types of um, jobs. Uh, so women are typically paid less for doing the same uh, work as men. Uh, working conditions are also an issue um, and political power. Uh, that comes with um, uh, wealth is also an issue. So there's a, there's uh, inequity in uh, the access to political power. Obviously, the wealthy have greater political power than the poor do. Uh, and just to, uh, just as uh, um, you can see here, for example, this is actually pretty interesting. An aging landscape in Arizona. <laughs> you can look at some of the jobs, or I'm sorry. <coughs> Some of the uh, businesses that are located in this particular strip center that cater to uh, older people. And obviously, Arizona is a place that a lot of uh, retirees are attracted to because of the climate there. And then this is the Port of Seattle uh, with its links to global trade and so forth, um, which uh, leads us to North America and the global economy. Coupled with Europe, North America plays a pivotal role in the global economy. The region is home to a number of global cities. Uh, U.S. and Canadian governments and firms played a formative role in creating uh, much of the global economy as seen in the establishment of things uh, as uh, institutions such as the International Monetary Fund, 
the World Bank, and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which, has late, which was later renamed the World Trade Organization. Both the United States and Canada also participate in the Group of Eight, uh, or the G8, which is a collection of powerful countries that confer regularly on key global economic and political issues. Patterns of Trade Both the United States and Canada import products from around the world. Growth in trade is especially pronounced with the Asian countries, uh, especially with China and South Korea. Uh, and of course, we can't for forget Japan either. Canada trades most heavily with the United States. The U.S. exports predominantly automobiles, aircraft, computer and telecommunications equipment, entertainment, um, financial and tourism services, and food products. Canada mostly exports raw materials such as grain, energy, um, uh, metals, and wood products, and manufactured goods as well. Uh, when we take a look at patterns of global investment, North America attracts huge inflows of foreign capital, both as investment in stocks and bonds and as direct, foreign direct investment. The United States is the largest destination of foreign investment in the world. U.S. citizens invest heavily in Japanese, European, and emerging uh, stock markets. Three key shifts in broader patterns of globalization are apparent. Traditional American-based multinational corporations are adopting new, more globally integrated models. A growing number of multinational corporations are buying companies and assets once controlled by North American or European capital. Many of these companies are also investing heavily in their own or other regions of the world. Outsourcing, of course, has also become a problem uh, for workers in North America. Um, outsourcing is a business process, a business practice that transport, I'm sorry, transfers portions of a company's uh, production and service activities to lower cost settings, often overseas. Many North Americans have benefited from cheaper imports as a result of global outsourcing. However, many North Americans have become unemployed because of the transfer of jobs to other countries. And so this map uh, is a um, map of some of the uh, socialist issues. And in particular, it's a map that shows the percent of children living in poverty. Uh, and this map was created in 2007. And I can tell you uh, from, from what I've been reading recently, these numbers have only increased. They have not decreased, uh, particularly for the United States. And you can see in the United States, particularly in the southern part of the country, uh, that we have over 22% of children that live in poverty. Uh, and, and quite frankly, um, as being uh, considered the richest country in the world, I think this is really shameful. And I'm sorry to editorialize on this, but I, I really find it to be um, shameful that, uh, that we have this percentage of children living in poverty. And then you can see uh, this is apparent in other southern states outside of this uh, dark uh, I guess kind of orangish color, if you wish, in some of the browner uh, uh, color states. Uh, so, for example, 18 to 21.9% of the children live in poverty. And this is also uh, apparent in New York State, as you can see. Now, I suspect much of this data, if we would take a closer look at New York State, that we would see that this um, data is probably skewed by uh, New York City. Uh, and also Ohio, Michigan, uh, also. Uh, so these are some of the old industrial 
um, areas of the United States where we see a relatively high proportion of children living in poverty. And once again, I you know I I hate to harp on this, but I find it really um, shameful that this exists. So I'm going to finish up uh, on North America uh, with a with a quick summary. North Americans have reaped the benefits of the natural abundance of their region. In turn, they have transformed the environment and created a high, highly affluent society, at least for certain portions of that society. Uh, North America's affluence have, has come with a price. The region confronts significant environmental challenges. In a rather short period of time, a unique cultural imprint has been forged on the region. North America exhibits two closely intertwined yet very distinctive political and cultural trends. In the United States, especially many social problems including ethnic diversity, immigration, poverty, and racial uh, discrimination remain. The global economic recession has profoundly impacted the region's economic geography, particularly with respect to housing and unemployment. So that brings me to a close on our series of lectures in North America. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this series of lectures. And I will see you for the next series of lectures.